Hey, yo, artists and musicians. Who, us? Yeah, do you want your own vinyl records? Yeah, but I can't order a thousand of them. Or wait like a year to get them. Yeah, we're going on tour in two months. Check out our friends lathecuts.com. They'll make you vinyl singles in quantities as small as 50 copies and as quickly as three or four weeks. Get out of here. You heard me right. All their pricing is a la carte and they can help you pick a package that fits your budget. Okay, who we talk to about this? You need to email my buddy Mike. His address is lathecuts at yahoo.com. And if you mention low profile, you'll get a 10% overrun on your order. So if I order 50 records? Mike's going to send you 55. If I order 75, I guess you would get 82 and a half? Something like that. Remember, you got to mention low profile to get that deal, and it won't be around forever. What was that address again? That's lathecuts at yahoo.com. Custom-made records in small quantities. Mention low profile to get a 10% overrun on your order. And emailing now. The illustrations for Season 4 episodes were drawn by Taylor W. Rushing. To find out more about his work and see more of his art, as well as limited edition prints and merchandise, you can visit taylorwrushing.com or find him on Instagram at twrushing. Hey everybody, this is Markley, and you're listening to Low Profile with Markley Morrison. The first thing I want to do on this episode is introduce you to Jack Habiger. So, I'm just going to call him up right now. Hey, Jack? Hey, yeah, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you just fine. While you're on the line, uh, I'd like to say how we met, because it does tie into this episode. Ties in Uh, perfectly. Yeah. Uh, So I went downtown to Lavoyer here in Olympia to go catch Jeffrey Lewis's band playing. Uh, Opening for Jeffrey was a band called Pigtails. That was you up there with with your buddies. Yes. And you guys were opening. I loved it. And then we got to talking afterwards and found out that we had some things in common. We're both from California, living in Olympia. Mm -hmm. Um, We both dabbled in music journalism as well as writing and recording music. Mm -hmm. Both fans Um, of the band Lake. Yeah, yeah, they're they're pretty good. I think they're really going to go somewhere. Yeah, I I don't think I can get that band on the show, honestly. No, no, not but, at this point. Yeah, if you get some money, right, probably have to bribe them. That is a good time to to plug the Patreon. If you want to get Lake on the show, go over to Patreon, pick that highest tier, and sometime soon. You'll get a you'll get a nice fun together to get the get those people on. 
<laughs> sure. And then and maybe once that happens, maybe at that point you can get pigtails on too. But we'll see. I can't make any promises. Yeah, I heard those people in that band are, um, you know, they're hard to persuade. They're hard to get a hold of, and once you are, they are snooty. Ooh. <laughs> hard but, to talk to. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of hard to talk to, how was it talking to Jeffrey Lewis? You're you're hosting this episode, and I am. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for asking me to to do uh, a guest spot. I had a lot of fun talking to Jeff, and uh, we had such a great time uh, playing together. It, it felt like, uh, you know, I jumped at the chance to um, to interview him for for your show. Felt like a good full circle moment, which I think I maybe mentioned in the in the interview. And Jeff was great to talk to. You know, we we talked while he was um, while he was working on some drawings in his sketchbook. Um, right. So, uh, yeah. This would be a was, good a good point to mention that he's also a comic book artist. He, right, he draws yeah. largely autobiographical comics. Right, yeah, he's got a series called Fuff that is, uh, I think they're they're coming up on a name change here for this next issue, but uh, historically yeah, known that. as Fuff. But he was, yeah, he was working on some drawings while we were talking over Zoom, and uh, we had a lovely conversation about, you know, uh, music and comics and, and the Holy Modal Rounders and, and uh, Tuli Kupferberg, all kinds of great people, uh, and it was really great to catch up with him. Yeah, he had some really uh, poignant things to say about David Berman, too, which is really yes. cool. Big Silver Jews fan. And you got sort of the skinny on his so-called films. And for the uninitiated, I don't mean that in a denigrating way. It's cool to get the inside scoop on that. Yeah, I was I was very happy to talk to him about that kind of stuff. And uh, He's a history enthusiast. Oh yeah, and yeah, we Big definitely time. get into that stuff, and 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 that's that's some of my favorite parts of the interview because I, you know, historically in interviews, you know, you always want to get someone excited talking about what they love, and I felt like once we got into that, that we were really cooking with gas because he was very enthusiastic, very happy to talk about that kind of thing, and that's you know that's that's when you know the interview is going real good when you get someone going. Man, you did such a great job. Thank you so much. This is your first time guest hosting. I hope it's not the last. Well, first time guest hosting, but second appearance on the show. Right. You were co-hosting. Yeah, we did Lavender Country. I, uh, I have a, a brief appearance in, in that. And uh, hopefully, yeah, I'd love to come back and, and do more. This is, um, you know, whenever anyone asks me about podcasts, I say, I don't know anything about podcasts, but I listen to one. And it's this one. So it's, I feel very lucky to be a part of it. Oh, shucks. I don't know how it started, I suppose it was about the 10th grade I'd never bought much music, I just listened to whatever was played But there was classic rock there on the radio and it was blowing my mind And it was all the records no one wanted now, so they were easy to find So I started getting LPs, they only cost a little And these LPs were all the ones I needed from the 60s With psychedelic art on all the great sleeves much cooler and much cheaper than the CDs And that's the way I caught the disease I caught the disease for LPs There wasn't any internet A lot of times you just took a shot Pretty soon you figured out Which records would be awesome or not If the year was from the 60s It was probably good bang for your buck 
If the year was from the 80s, it was guaranteed to totally suck. I started learning about the LPs, and that's time education just cost both these. Three dollars for this Dylan record, oh yes please. And the cream and Rolling Stones and Arlo Guthrie's. A giant treasure trove was all for pennies, and that's the way I got the disease. I got the disease for LPs. You got your start in New York playing open mics and recording homemade tapes, and your newest release is these 2020 tapes, which is a return to the style of those early tapes. Um, can you walk me through the recording and songwriting process for that? Is it different than normal or a return to form to those beginnings? Well, I sort of had always just been making recordings via whatever recording device I happened to have on hand, whether that was like a Walkman at certain times in early years and then uh, at some point I got like a little digital recording device and I, I just had various uh, devices and then, you know, some stuff recorded into the phone. I just feel like when I write a song and I want to get a document of it before I forget it and just to have a little recording of it, you know, I always just use whatever is the easiest documentation device that I have around at that time, you know, going back to when I first started doing this in the late 90s. So I just have tons of these kinds of recordings. It, it, some songs end up migrating from the little pile of home recorded songs into stuff that I might be doing live at an open mic or trying out at gigs or showing to my band if it's something that I think might be good with some extra instrumentation. And then other songs just never kind of graduate through that filter and they just are something that I wrote and then I recorded it and, uh, you know, I never did anything with it beyond that just because, I don't know, maybe I just didn't feel like it was worth playing for people or for whatever reason. So I always have a bunch of these recordings. And then, uh, you know, there was something, I, it, just being locked in my apartment for months during the uh, early months when things were really particularly bad in New York City, um, I was writing a lot of songs and I just felt, I just was kind of, uh, you know, I was pleased listening to these recordings and a, a friend of mine, uh, David Tattersall from the band, The Wave Pictures in England, he was releasing some of his home recordings online. And I was like, you know, why not? Uh, some of these are like very rough around the edges or some of them are, you know, very personal or some of them are not things that I would play in front of people necessarily, but it just made sense to me. I felt like they were pleasing to me as a collection of um, just what, you know, so I, I made a collection of songs from last year, uh, 2019 and um, songs from this year, 2020. And also it sort of made sense to me the two different realities represented um, stuff that, you know, stuff that was affecting my emotions in 2019 versus stuff that was going on in 2020. It just, I, I just liked the idea of those two collections back to back, though I was a bit frightened to put it in public and have it available digitally because it has been a long time since I kind of let my little home recordings out into the world. And nowadays, 
there's more people listening to my stuff than there were in the early 90s. So it's kind of like, I don't know if this meets people's expectations for what they would be expecting to hear from me, which is part of why I didn't make it available on streaming. You know, I only put it on my own site because I don't want it really released into the streaming uh, right. ecosystem. Right. Speaking of those early tapes, your tapes from the crypt 97 to 01. Yeah, that was a that was a fun one to make. You know, there's a reason I didn't put those recordings out earlier. It's kind of like a glimpse into the archives of me as a, you know, in my early and mid 20s just making up those songs and you know, now that I'm in my 40s, I'm like uh, you know, it it feels like stuff that uh you know, I, I wouldn't want people to get that, that their first impression of me from that stuff. Like, I don't I don't think it's my best work. It's just kind of like a look into, you know, a look into the archives. Right. Well, I was wondering if we could maybe play a brief clip of songs about songwriting. Sure. That that was one of my earliest songs. I mean, that's probably from 1998 or something like that. Songs about songwriting suck, so I'm writing a song about songs about songwriting. Songs about songwriting suck, so I'm writing a song about songs about songwriting. A guy that I saw play once at this open mic said, Here's a song I wrote that I don't like. He sang about how there was. We have not yet talked about your comics work. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how your comics work and your music projects blend together with um, stuff like your your CD packaging and and uh, stuff like these original tapes. Well, you know, I graduated college in 97 and my whole goal was just to somehow figure out how I could survive from my comic books. I'd always been making comic books and it was always kind of my dream to uh, make comic books professionally, whether that was to work for a company or just make my own comics and publish them. And, you know, I, I uh, entered the regular working world and I was basically existing as a stereotypical starving artist with, um, you know, almost zero money and no food in the house regularly. and but I was just working on my comics all the time. And I started also making up songs during that period, like my first real winter out of school. And it was just, you know, an extremely lonely time, an extremely broke time. And um, I, uh, you know, working on comics, in addition to these um, teaching gigs and uh, like handing out surveys at movie theaters and various other things I was doing, uh, to uh, just to make grocery money and rent money and laundry money uh, and you know making up songs just kind of entered the picture in addition to making comics and I was while I was accumulating rejection letters from different comic companies and you know once in a while getting a little illustration job for 20 bucks from a local local magazine or submitting my stuff to other magazines uh, you know the songs were like just a kind of solace and a way to uh, also spend all of that lonely, broke time. Uh, the songs kind of just became a way of procrastinating on making the comics. I'd have a comic book on my desk that I needed to work on. And I was like, you know, but there was a guitar in the house. So sometimes instead of sitting down and working more on the comic into a cold winter's night, I would just pick up the guitar and um, 
make up something on the guitar. And then hanging out at the open, you know, when I discovered the open mic at Sidewalk um, on East 6th Street in Manhattan, and I realized that there was this open mic on Monday nights, that kind of also gave me a reason to, you know, a place where I could present my songs and sell my comic books. So I was, it was always like a little way, you know, the music and the open mic was a nice way for me to have a chance to sell some of my stuff. And after a number of months, being a, a very hardcore regular at the open mic night, just being there every Monday night from uh, the beginning of the night to the end of the night, I started meeting other people, even though I was usually very kind of like isolated and shy and just sitting by myself with my sketchbook. But over time, over like a year or two years, I knew all these other musicians. So, you know, people were asking me to play gigs with them and somebody would say, hey, I'm playing, you know, in October, I have a gig at Nightingale's. Would you want to play that gig with me? And, you know, things just grew from there. So meanwhile, I was always hoping that my comic career was going to somehow be my main source of making a living. But uh, while I was like waiting for that to happen, which never did happen, I was, you know, within a few years, by 2002, I was like, huh, I'm actually making a living just from like gigging and touring and music stuff. So at that point, I stopped having other day jobs and just concentrated on booking gigs and touring. But I, I never stopped making comics. And I was always selling my comics at my gigs and doing artwork for all, you know, every time I would release an album, of course, I would do the artwork for it. It wouldn't even cross my mind to have somebody else do the artwork for it. And uh, you've got the end of your series, Fuff, has ended with, with issue 12. And I hear that there's a new, a new series title coming soon. Is that what you're working on right now? Yeah, well, I'm, uh, well, right now I'm just inking some sketchbook sketches because it doesn't really require my brain to be uh, focused on it in the same way. So I can like talk and ink these sketches at the same time. You know, I'll probably have maybe a 24 page issue or 28 page issue to be issue number one of the new series, which will basically just be more of the same as the old series, but with a different title and with a new number one. And also I think over the course of the Fuff series, which I started in 2004, I think I've really learned a lot about making comics. I feel like I'm at a better level of development now. So I, I kind of like the idea of having a series that starts with me being able to make comics at the level that I can now, rather than somebody starting from number one and like seeing this slow evolution of me kind of learning how to do it a little better. Uh, you know, I just felt like getting a fresh start. And I was quite sick of the title Fuff because it doesn't make any sense and it was stupid and I never planned, I never thought I was going to end up stuck with it for 15 years as I did. Uh, it was just a random, not very well thought out title, which just fits into a kind of whole, it's just such a stereotypical thing for a comic like that to have a one syllable nonsense title. I mean, that goes all the way back to Robert Crumb doing Zap in the late 60s and um or probably well, actually really it goes back to mad uh mad and arg and you know all, all these comics that have titles like oof and hop and uh plop you know, and bats exactly yeah, yeah. so yeah. i i was like man am i really why am i like uh it just seemed a little stereotypical from i was like i i, I didn't even really think about it but I'll try something a little different for the next kind of title, I guess. 
Well, I screamed my way through one more dead-end day In the tortures of the starving arts I trashed the 15th song I'd bashed away too long Into the dustbin of discarded studs And my programmer friend invites me out again But I got nothing all month to be proud of He said, my friend, it seems Art is a sweatshop of dreams Cause art's an office that you can't clock out of but that's nice work if you I want to hear more it. about your for for the for the listeners who haven't had the pleasure of seeing uh, the Jeffrey Lewis band live um, you will occasionally show movies um, which uh, are comic performances uh, frequently to um, tape recordings um, and I was wondering if you could talk about about those and if I have wondered if those were inspired by uh like Jack Kirby's chalk talks or anything like that. Um that's fine. I don't even know Jack Kirby did chalk talks. I I would think of um like I know Windsor McKay would do that like a long, long time ago. It was kind of a vaudeville thing. Uh, but I don't draw fast enough to do that thing as like a live drawing situation i it started from what uh you know in like the late 90s early 2000s i was trying to make every appearance that i did a different sort of event so i wasn't touring yet and i was just you know maybe i would have a gig in new york every six weeks or something so i had plenty of time to think of what can i do with this upcoming gig that i haven't done before oh i'll invite my friend to uh play banjo with me and my other friend to play trumpet and we'll work out some arrangements or uh oh i'll do you know some i I just every show was kind of a chance to put on a unique show which you can't really do in the same way once you start touring because you're playing every single night and you're just in the car every day you don't have time to like make a whole book just for that one show and then make a whole new you know come up with costumes for the next show and when you're on tour on the road, my creative input into each gig is coming up with a different set list and maybe coming up with like, you know, some different songs we can try, new songs or, uh, you know, it's not like I have weeks between each gig. I do make every show different. I have, you know, over a hundred songs I can pick from and I spend some time in the car every day trying to compose some kind of new interesting set list which I, I think is a lot of fun and kind of keeps me creatively excited. But in the early days, I was really trying to come up with completely different things I could do at each gig. And the illustrated songs were just one more idea like that. It was just something I did at one gig, um, maybe in like 99 or something or 2000. It just seemed such a natural fit and it seemed to work so well that instead of just doing it at one gig, it was something that kind of stuck with me from my early days of trial and error, it was one of the things that just stuck around and I just kept making them. So I was like, oh, I'll make a new one of those for my next gig. And, you know, over the years, I just started accumulating them, coming up with more ideas for the kinds of stories that I could tell in that form. Um, and, and you were talking a little bit about uh, trying to make each show different and inviting different people. Uh, let's talk about, you've got a, a grand swath of collaborators that you have worked with down through the years. Um, and I'm wondering how you approach uh, create uh, collaborative songwriting because I know you have you have full album collaborations with 
Kimya Dawson and Diane Cluck. Uh, and I was wondering how those, uh, how you approach that as opposed to your solo recordings. Well, you know, even just starting out, it was always me and my brother, Jack. Uh, you know, I would write songs and Jack, who was very young at that time, maybe he was like 16 and I was like 21 when we both started making up songs. Um, some of the songs like on my first tapes were songs that Jack would make up and I would come up with guitar parts or maybe a couple of lines here and there. So there was always like a little bit of collaboration going on just with my brother. And then it was really the, the uh, additional levels of collaborating with other songwriters that I started meeting at open mic nights. I had a band with some friends called Guitar Situations where it was kind of just how can like four or five of us sit around and make up a song together where we all come up with different things to do. And none of us were like good musicians. It was just kind of like a fun way to come up with different ways to make up a song. So that was around 2000 when we had this kind of, this guitar situations band where our rule was that every show had to have all new songs and anybody could be a part of the band. So from show to show, it was like different people would get together and make up songs together. And there, we tried to have a rule that every show had all new songs that were all made up collaboratively by the people that happened to be in the band. So it was kind of like the band was a process more than a specific combination of people. Like I, wa I wasn't in every Guitar Situations performance. Uh, it was really fun for me to go see those shows and see like, oh, what will so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so make up together as Guitar Situations. So it was kind of like a funny experiment and collaboration. Well, that's neat. But uh, I know that the, the Guitar Situations did record an album in 2002. Um, and I was wondering if we could play a clip from that and which song you're most partial to from that release. Oh, um, yeah, I think Annotations on that album is a pretty good example of what that kind of collaborative mashup sounds like. Different people all contributing parts and overlapping them. Great. All right. So we'll play a clip of Annotations. The tiny envelope with your name on it. The chapter makes you think that you are a hit. I'm a Fractal sing a song, the chocolate sings along On a cake, a cake for flap, fractal sing a song Jump into the icing, time is on the table Feeling never felt so wrong, feeling to be able Jessica, someone, I don't know You could take your rats out to a show The pan line is a lot longer now, it seems to produce So that kind of stuck with me and uh, the different ways that you could sit down with somebody and come up with your own contributions to making a collaborative song. But it really kicked off for me when I was living in Austin, Texas in the year 2000, uh, early 2001. Uh, Kimya Dawson from the Moldy Peaches came down and stayed with me for a couple of weeks because we had met each other at the Sidewalk Cafe open mic um, in like 1999. And she was always into traveling by Greyhound bus and I was living in Austin. So she took a Greyhound bus down from New York. And um, in the couple of weeks that we stayed, that we were um, hanging out together in Austin and she was staying in my little room, she suggested that we make up songs together. 
And that was really eye-opening for me, like the way, the kinds of ways that she had to make up collaborative songs, which were obviously similar to the ways that she and Adam Green had been making up songs in the Moldy Peaches, where they were trade verses back and forth, and somebody would write one line, and the next person would write the next line, or one person would write a couplet, and the next person would write a couplet, or they would both write separate rhymes and then mix them on top of each other. And they were kind of like games. It was sort of like, okay, we're sitting around, we have no money, it's raining out or whatever. Like, let's make up a, you know, instead of playing Scrabble, let's make up a song. Uh -huh. So make, making up those songs with Kimya was really fun and eye-opening. And um, the results were just, you know, delightful and interesting and not something that either person could make up on their own. Something for everyone Don't forget about your friends 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 Something for everyone Hey dude, to see you everybody said for me to say hello to you for that A comic book, a letter in addition to your your uh, long list of collaborators you also come from a musical family uh, I know your uncle is professor Louie the the rapper um, and I was wondering if having a rapper in the family influenced your songwriting at all. He's a very big influence and inspiration uh, for me. And he's really the only, you know, I, you know, my mom plays a little bit of folk guitar and my dad plays some very good finger picked country blues. So there was always a guitar in my house growing up. Um, but it certainly wasn't like, uh, you know, no, my parents don't write songs and they're not artists. So my uncle, Victor, who performs as Professor Louie, he's really like the creative poetic element that, you know, I can turn to as, an, you know, I, I can sort of, and I, and I think he's so fantastic at what he does. He's on such a high level and he's been doing like, he started out in the 60s doing kind of radical theater stuff. And then he kind of created this rap persona more in like late 70s, early 80s as Professor Louie. He's the kind of guy that, you know, if I write something new or if, or if he comes to one of my gigs, that's whose opinion matters the most to me because he really understands what you can do by putting the right words in the right order and by having something real that you're trying to convey. Uh, you know, it's kind of like his standard of artistic practice is what I try to hold myself to. Way back in the day, 1973, right on out there for you and me and everyone to see the United States went off the gold standard. Unwind your mind, you can understand it. No box, no locks, don't drop your socks. There's no more gold down in Fort Knox and we will see the bill sooner or later what you got in your pocket. So having, having someone... Uh, be be an inspiration like that um 
who's from maybe an older generation uh, leads me to Peter Stamfel um, of the Holy Modal Rounders and the Fugs. Um, and I was hoping you could tell us a, a little story about uh, how you discovered them and how your collaborations with Peter came about. Well, I was a, you know, a fan of the Holy Modal Rounders. I had picked up some of those records over the years and um, in addition to being a very big fan of the Fugs, and these are all kind of, it's kind of neighborhood history for me because it's all like Lower East Side Manhattan stuff from the 60s, which I was very curious about, like what was going on in the neighborhood when my parents were uh, first living here in the late 50s and the through the 60s. And it's just like a whole musical culture of this part of New York that isn't on the radio and it's not really represented in a lot of people's ideas of what the 60s were about, but it was a very rich and interesting and weird music scene that was happening in uh, downtown Manhattan in the in the 60s. And, you know, of course, the Velvet Underground is the most well-known of those bands, but there were a bunch of others and the Holy Modal Rounders were one of the neighborhood bands. So I had written this piece called The Development of punk on the Lower East Side of New York from 1950 to 1975, where I sort of tell this poem about how one album kind of led to the to another, and and it was all kind of taking place in the same area and part of the same cultural transitions. So I performed this piece that I had written around 2004 about the development of this you know this neighborhood music the old folks then one strange folk band downtown called the holy modal rounders began to make it more anarchistic with weird voices and drug jokes mom's out there switching in the kitchen and dad's in the living room fussing and bitching i'm out here kicking the gong for euphoria euphoria when your mind starts reeling and walking inside voices start squealing and squawking floating around on a belladonna cloud singing you and peter stanfield happened to be in the audience when i did that performance so he, he came up to me afterwards um, and so we started talking and I found out that he's really into comic books also. So we just had a lot to talk about. And of course I was just a, a big fan. So it was very exciting for me to get to meet him in person. And, um, so yeah, I asked him if he would play some music on the album that I was recording at that time, uh, the album city and Eastern songs. So I had him come and, uh, play some fiddle and some banjo on some of my tracks then, which was like 2005. And then we just, you know, I asked him if he'd want to play a show with me at Sidewalk sometime. So we started doing little gigs together and that just eventually led to, you know, some tours that we did together and we started writing songs together and we released some albums together. Uh, so yeah, that was just a, a very exciting and cool thing for me to actually get to know Peter and get to work with him. And he's just, uh, you know, a very inspiring and amazing creative character. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to specifically draw attention to the song Hey Hey from Hey Hey, it's the Jeffrey Lewis and Peter Stample band. And I was hoping we could play a brief clip from that. Uh, but also it sounds like Peter is having a lot of fun. Well, he's just like a, a guru of how to uh, be a human being and just enjoy this little time that we have to be alive. I mean, he has fun he gravitates towards things that are that bring him joy yeah absolutely that's great
the next crosswalk. We will not walk instead, we'll all start skipping and jumping. And maybe in this whole New York, a little act of happiness can still be something. On the subject of the Rounders and the Fugs, uh, could you talk a little bit about your relationship with Thule Kupferberg and uh, the yearly, the annual Thule festivals, which there's not a lot of information about those online. Well, you know, this is all just very, there's not really much information about anything that would go on in this little local, you know, it's like the equivalent of uh, Le Voyeur in Olympia, the Sidewalk Cafe, which closed last year. Um, was just a little place where you could, like Lavoyer, you know, almost anybody could book a gig there. Um, and it was just a small place and all ages. And so if I felt like doing something like, hey, on Tuli Cooperberg's birthday, let me just put together an event where everybody does covers of Tuli Cooperberg songs, and I'll, I'll put together a band and we'll play uh, our renditions of Tuli's songs there's no barrier to do it. They just say like, okay, sure. Um, it doesn't matter if there's an audience for it or not. Um, you can just have, you can just use the space however you want to use it. Um, so that was something after Thule died in 2010. And I had known him for a number, a few years prior to that. Um, similar to Peter, I had met him and had started collaborating with him. He was still in the neighborhood. I mean, it's the thing in New York City, this space is so condensed, you know, like everybody's just, right here you would just see Lou Reed walk down the street oh there's David Byrne oh there's Patti Smith um there's Martin Rev from Suicide I still see you know I just saw him in my grocery store the other day um the uh the the kind of equalizing level of New York City like everybody's just walking around and everybody's like right here so you know Tuli Kuferberg and Peter Stanfield were just two people that I was fans of who were not that they lived not that far away from me and I you know you just, you see them at an art gallery, you see them at a gig and they're very approachable. You know, they're not, um, they're not like, uh, behind glass or behind a velvet rope. If, if, you know, if you're a fan and you just want to talk to them, they were right there. So Thule was always very open like that. And then he was interested in some of the stuff I was doing, my history of communism pieces and my, uh, his, you know, I had a lot of stuff that was like neighborhood history and political history that were things that he was interested in. So um, we had a lot to talk about in that regard. And then after he died, I just started doing these kind of tribute events on his birthday every year. And then we recorded this album, um, Works by Thule Kuferberg, where I kind of recorded in a studio what I thought were the best renditions of my my band covering his, his songs, some of which were very obscure, some of which were only poems that had never been set to music before. But I, I really think that that's a fantastic collection of work that a lot of people might not, you know, his stuff in the Fugs is somewhat well known, but he had a lot of other projects that he worked on too. Right. This train is bound for Brooklyn. This train. This train is not good looking. This train. This train is bound for Brighton. If you want to go to Bay Ridge, you're not on the right one. This train is bound for Brooklyn. This train. So you were saying that uh, he was interested in, in some of your history pieces. 
I see that history is a passion of yours. You've got um, your history of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is uh, part of a project from the History Channel, and your recent, his, more recent history of Chile. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that uh, and your interest in history? And well, this was. Um partially connected to what I was saying earlier about the illustrated songs mm -hmm. and when I would like write a song and then do illustrations to go with it as an interesting thing that I could do in my gigs. I've been doing that for a few years when I realized that on um, it could be an interesting way to tackle historical topics as well as just my own other, my own songs and, and weird fantasy songs. And a topic that was tremendously interesting to me was the history of communism because I'd always grown up in a very communist leaning household and my grandparents and uh, basically all my family in all directions were very connected to an earlier generation of left-wing politics where um, I grew up in a very confused state of mind because as a kid in the 80s, the communists were always the bad guys in all the movies and everything else. Um, and I never understood why like that was such a distinct clash with the kind of the books that were on the shelves you know it, it, all my family my uncle my parents my grandparents um all had a you know we were just steeped in this culture and this literature in which you know the capitalists are the bad guys and uh, um so i couldn't understand as a kid and then as an adult as well this really huge difference in the way that um those histories are perceived. This stuff is just not on TV. It's not, it wasn't like the stories of what actually happened are just kind of absent from American culture. It's almost like taboo, you know, like the way they, uh, they talk about Castro now, you know, or like, did you know that like Obama, like once uh, was at an event that Fidel Castro was at, you know, it's like, like what, well, so what, like what, who you know who is Fidel Castro what did he do like who is this Che Guevara guy who you know who's Ho Chi Minh like what the, what what the hell was the Vietnam War about like how come I grew up with all these movies uh Full Metal Jacket and Platoon and you know Hamburger Hill and Apocalypse Now with 10 million movies about Vietnam when I was a kid and in the 90s and none of them ever said what it was about like none of them even mentioned do they even mention Ho Chi Minh do they mention the French colonization they don't there's no information at all it's just like oh the vietnam war was a big thing there were anti-war protests there were you know but what what you know like it's just blank it's just absent and what so that really gravitated you know i really gravitated towards learning about this huge part of 20th century history that was a complete mystery to me and then it was sort of like i was presenting my findings to my audience i would learn all this stuff about the history of vietnam and my mind would be blown when i was like oh my god that's what was going on i have to show my i can't wait to show my audience this story because they you know it might blow their minds the way my mind was blown like now i understand apocalypse now now i understand um what the tonkin gulf incident was and how it relates to what happened in the Korean War and blah, 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 blah. You know, it just like, it's like a look behind the, it's like the other side of, 20, of the 20th century that is like in American history and culture. It's like, it's just, it's just erased in this very weird way. Right, yeah, when I was in high school, we never learned about the Korean War. 
Like it never came up at all. Oh yeah, never. The Korean War, what like, you know, like never mentioned. Yeah. Um, do you, do you get a lot of people coming up to you after, after shows, uh, saying that, saying that I, oh, I never knew this, this was, I'm, you know, this was totally new information to me. Thank you for the history. Oh yeah, totally, totally. Um, but the scariest thing is when the opposite happens, when somebody comes up and is like, well, actually I'm a professor of French history and, you know, my, my, my like biggest fear is when somebody knows what I'm talking about. You know, because I'm just like a layman like anybody else. Like, I, you know, I'm just up there. I'm basically just telling people like what it took me, say, three months of research to learn. You know, it's not like I'm, it's not right. like I'm a, taking a graduate program in the history of Chile. A land once ruled by Inca that was colonized by Spain. The colony claimed independence in 1818, but they let the inequalities of conquest still remain. By the early 1900s, Chile mined its copper ore, and the U.S. businessmen that owned the mines were billionaires. And while a few wealthy Chileans owned all land, the rest were poor. But democracy brought votes, and voting everybody shares. By the 50s, votes brought socialists like Salvador Allende, who asked why Chile's mines should be for U.S. businessmen. And he said, we don't want violence. May our voting change things gently. So I'm, I basically, I'm not learning anything that somebody else couldn't easily learn with, you know, three or four or five months of looking into it. But that's partially why it's so astonishing that nobody knows this stuff. Right. It's all right there once you start looking. And it's not, these are not conspiracy theories. This is, this is just yeah. what happened. Right. You know. And, and how, did, how did you get hooked up with the History Channel then? Well, they were looking, there was a guy, um, uh, Shane, who was um, looking for material. He had been hired to uh, create content or find people who could create content for the history people. And, um, you know, what I do is essentially perfect for exactly what they needed. It's engaging, it's entertaining, it's short form, it's colorful. Um, and it's very low budget because it's just me with a big pad of paper and some crayons and a guitar. Um, so yeah, they had a whole bunch of topics. They gave me like a huge list of topics that they were like, we, we don't have enough about this stuff in our archives. You know, like we've covered a lot of, you know, they've done a lot about World War II, but they don't have very much about whatever, the Cuban Missile Crisis, or, you know, the, they had a whole list of stuff that they were trying to increase their content on. So mm -hmm. I just picked, I picked five of them that appealed the most to me. And I did those projects. And then the next year, they approached me again to do another five. So we did 10 in total. Well, the Chile one was really a big deal to me that that story affects me very deeply emotionally, it, it raises so many very troubling questions. It's also a little more contemporary than the early ones because this is stuff that happened in the 70s it's not you know the the korean war is like in the 50s the vietnam war mm -hmm. is in the 60s and it has its roots earlier than that and so the um the story of chile is a little more contemporary and related to events that are still unfolding now i put a lot of pressure on myself i was like how am i possibly going to tackle this and now that I finally got it done and posted it, I don't know if it's 
as good at, you know, I think maybe my story of Cuba or my story of Vietnam are maybe a little better in terms of the, the telling. I'm not sure if my Chile song came out as good in my own opinion as some of the ones that I think are my best pieces. It's not the, it's not the overall masterpiece that I was hoping it would be, but that's the way it is. You know, I write a lot, like I was saying before, I write and record a lot of songs and not all of them are my, you know, only a few of them are the ones that I consider are the strongest. And it's the same drawing in a sketchbook. You're just drawing and once in a while you really latch onto something and something really works for you in a certain way. And that doesn't necessarily relate to how anybody else takes it, you know, which is part of why it's kind of cool for me to put out these home recorded songs because just because they're not what I feel makes sense for me to play live or to include on an official album, mm-hmm. that may not, that's not necessarily going to be somebody else's opinion of them. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing when you're making stuff, you don't really know. Right. America must act, and we must act here right away. This virus puts our national resources under threat today. Can't let our crowning jewels expire from neglect or from delay. Our Federal Reserve must be preserved to sing and play. The first thing we must ask for as this task force mission started is an enormous thick partition that quickly cordons Dolly Parton. Work nine to five to build it, seal from Jackson out to Raleigh. I bet Jolene don't take her man and COVID-19 don't take Dolly. America must act and we must act here right away. Hanging in my kitchen since we played together, uh, in my house, which is always a great conversation starter, is your David Berman poster. And uh, I wonder what does does that start conversations? Do people have any idea what they're looking at when they see that? Yeah, well, a lot of times people will come in and they'll and I'll find them looking at it and they'll be like, you know, pointing out the whichever songs that they have found, and then I'll show which ones that I have found, and then our roommates will come in and be like, oh yeah, this is my, my favorite David Berman song. It's in this corner. Um, so it does, it does, uh, it does spark conversation. Oh, that's great. So people aren't like, just like, oh, what is this colorful, you know, cause a lot of people look at that, you know, they're like, what is this? Where's Waldo? Um, <laughs> you know, because people don't, you know, I have those on, when I play a gig, I might have those posters. I have one for the fall, a hundred fall songs. Mm-hmm. And, the majority of people that are at a Jeffrey Lewis gig are not necessarily going and thinking like they, maybe they don't know the fall. Maybe they don't know the silver shoes. So they just think here's this colorful detailed image that is on Jeffrey's merch table. Uh, let me just buy that. Cause it's nice to look at. So how, how did you become acquainted with, with David Berman and how did that poster come about? Uh, I guess for for those listeners who haven't seen haven't seen what Jeffrey has created, it's a poster that has uh, different graphic representations of different uh, Silver Jews songs. Well, in uh, 2015, I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of the band The Fall, and The Fall have like dozens of albums and hundreds of great songs. Well, great if you're a Fall fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had this idea around 2015, like, wouldn't it be really fun if I did a poster where I tried to cram in as many fall songs as possible? Um, So this was something that I had done back in the early mid nineties in like Grateful Dead parking lots and stuff like that. And then 
I hadn't done one of those drawings in many, many years. And then around 2015, I was like, man, it would be fun if I did something like that for the fall. I just could picture it looking so cool. There's like hundreds of fall songs and they all have such colorful titles like a right. rebellious jukebox and specter versus rector and uh you know i the false the, the man whose head expanded i could just see a hundred different fall songs that would be very cool in the draw to be illustrated in a complicated crowd drawing mm -hmm. so i did that um and i guess david berman had seen that somewhere and he contacted me out of the blue and asked me if I would not necessarily do the same thing for his own songs, but he said he really liked complicated artwork like that. And he had this new album, Purple Mountains, that was gonna be coming out soon. And he wanted to know if I would draw something that was like very detailed and complicated that could go with the album in some way. Um, so we talked about some different ideas. And then it just kind of seemed like the idea that we both liked the most was this idea of doing something basically the same as I had done for the fall, just doing this poster that would have all of the, as many of his songs in it mm -hmm. as I could create. So I spent some weeks working on it and I was emailing him back and I never met him in person. We were just email corresponding and I would just send him a photograph of the artwork as it was coming, as I would draw a bit more of it, I'd photograph it and send it to him. And it was just so much fun for both of us. Uh, I think we were both going through a, a dark winter. Um, and this project was just making us both, you know, really happy and like seeing these updates. And I was just having a great time every day, just sitting at my desk working on this thing. Um, and of course I was really looking forward to meeting him. My band was supposed to play a few shows opening up for Purple Mountains on the tour. And of course he killed himself just a week before the tour started. So I would have met him that week, but um, the you know reality just took this completely different turn, and that poster, rather than maybe being the start of um, him being somebody that I might have gotten to know, you know the same way that I got to know Peter Stamfel or I got to know Tuli Kuferberg, just from some kind of random uh, interaction originally. It could have been really interesting to have somebody like David Berman who, you know, maybe, uh, I don't, you know, but the thing is he is very well known and, you know, he, he was like on a very high level, you know, many, many people are fans of David Berman and the Silver Jews. So it's not like, I mean, it's not like I have the idea that I was suddenly going to be this guy's best friend. Um, but it was just very fascinating to have this email interaction with him because he's a real songwriter as a lyricist, as a poet, as somebody who works very deeply with putting words together. That interests me tremendously just to know how somebody like that thinks and how they work. And I love, you know, I have all of his albums anyway, even you know, before that. And um, so that was just very, uh, you know, of course at first very gratifying to have contact with him at all and be able to do this project and then very tragic to um, have him suddenly vanish from everybody's life in that really horrible way that none of us will ever get over because it's just it's just so unbelievable that mm. that it happened like that. So what I'm left with is this poster that um that I kind of have to remember him by and that everybody has now to you know just to celebrate how 
how cool his, all of his songs were. And um, it's nice because it's like a fun, you know, there's nothing dark yeah. about that poster. Right. You were conscious and responsive and present. You weren't trying to make something unpleasant. You were just bouncing off of things that were trashy. And it was never very tricky or flashy. You had a vision that was clear and directed. And the ways of words were all unexpected. You were unbelievable and you were undaunted. And you were exactly just what nobody wanted. So you, you've got some new things coming up on the horizon. I've heard that there's new possible release of new recordings with Peter Stamfel. Yeah, I've got two albums worth of recordings I did with Peter um, that we worked on in uh, probably like 2017, 2018 um, that could be released as a double album, which I think could be kind of a fun way to do it since I don't think either of us have ever released a double album before and it is two albums worth of material. I kind of like that as like an... Uh, I, I think that these Stanfield recordings make sense to me as some kind of epic double album. And lastly, we've got uh, your Watchmen analysis book is finally uh, seeming like it's going to come out there. Oh, yeah. Well, that's been taking me for, I mean, that's, I've been working on that for like over 20 years, which is just embarrassing and ridiculous. And um, it, every time, some every time there's some delay and I put it aside for another year then it's like oh, am I gonna have to re you know then I have to rewrite the whole introduction because I'm like oh the current state of the comic industry and how it relates to you know how different comics are today from how they were in 1986 when Watchmen came out and what you know it's constantly out of date every time every time it's like ready to be published and then it doesn't get published it just opens the door to me not feeling like it's done i feel like my analysis is the most interesting and in-depth one that has yet to no, nobody has ever i think written something like this um but i don't know if any it's it's not gonna i don't see it being received with i i have no idea how it would be received i just want to get it done and out because i've been working on it too long and it's just been hanging over my head as an unfinished project right yeah, well, I'm sure that there will be some kind of relief to just have it done, regardless of what happens. I'm so ready for it to just be something that I put behind me. I put so much work into it, and it's ridiculous that it doesn't exist yet in the world, really. I think we we have gotten a lot of great stuff, um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and coming on the show for my my very first uh podcast ever um well, you're off to a good start as long as this got recorded yeah oh well i just double checked and it looks like it did uh and i guess my my last question is um and forgive me if this is a little bit uh too cute of a question but it, i i have um in your song time trades you talk about the importance of finding joy and developing your skills uh, do you find that over time you find new interests to develop or that you're honing in more on what you've done for years? I think you got to stick to something. Like, you know, if I started saying, well, I'm tired of drawing, I'm going to start playing the trumpet. And like, oh, well, I'm tired of the trumpet. I'm going to, you know, take up gymnastics. You can't really get, you know, it's like being in love with somebody. You can't get to the deeper levels 
without spending time with one thing or one person. You know, the idea that, you know, that uh, you, you, you don't know what it's like to draw comics for 20 years when you've only been drawing comics for 10 years. And then when you've been drawing comics for 20 years, you don't know what your relationship is going to be to that skill, you know, when you've been doing it for 40 years. And if all you ever do is know what your relationship is to a certain skill for a short period of time, uh, that's a different kind of thing. There's like, there's levels of depth and understanding, no matter what it is. Uh, it could be, well, you know, so I was starting to say it could be poetry or something. I'm like, wait, that's like a line in the song. I'm, you know, it could be anything. I mean, why, why do I even say anything? You know, my songs, when I write a song, I'm like putting my thoughts in a more coherent order, obviously. I'm like putting the words in a certain order to hone in on what I'm trying to say. And then when I'm just talking in person, it's the same thought because I'm the same me. It's just uh -huh. not as well. It's not put together in the right way. So the song basically says it better than I can say it. If there's a way that time can offer you a trade. You gotta do something that you can get smarter at. You gotta do something you might just be a starter at. You'd better do something that you can get better at. Cause time is gonna take so much away. But that's the way that time can offer you a trade. And maybe that's why they call a trade. We just heard Jack Haberger's interview with Jeffrey Lewis. Jack, thanks so much for doing that. I love of it. Of course, yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Jeffrey for making the time to talk. Um, and uh, I'm super excited to hear the rest of this season. If you like this episode and want to hear more like it or learn more about it, there's a website that has additional information on all the featured guests for every episode. Um, that is lowprofilepodcast.com. And then you've also got the band Pigtails on Bandcamp. Right, yes. And if you're interested in the band Pigtails, uh, then that's uh, the thebandpigtails.bandcamp.com also to hear our self-titled record, Pigtails. And of course, you can find Jeffrey Lewis's materials, comics, music, and otherwise at thejeffreylewissite.com. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. Nowadays, that stuff is so expensive, I don't bother to try. Everything's reissued, and plus everything is priced really high. The field is overcrowded, it's impossible to get a good fix. So I walk right past the records, and I flip through all the used compact discs. Yeah, nowadays it's mostly CDs, no one wants to keep them, so there's plenty. Folk and punk and private press and rap and indie. Bonus tracks and liner notes are just empty. As long as I can still make a good discovery, I've still got that music hunger to see. That disease that I got from LPs. When they were dirt cheese in the 90s.